Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a gospel uh, that is such wonderful news for our world. But at the same time, Father, we know that uh, people sometimes are offended by the gospel, as we're going to see tonight in Acts chapter 3. Uh, And Father, we know that we should not expect that people will support us preaching the gospel and support us living as Christians. So we thank you for the wonderful freedoms we currently have in Australia and we pray that they might continue. We pray for people in other parts of the world who are persecuted every day for the name of Jesus, that they might stand firm in the faith. And we pray that our government might see sense on legislation like this uh, and not impose these changes. But in the meantime, Father, help us to keep trusting you in it all and help us just to keep loving Jesus, living for him and preaching his gospel, uh, whatever the consequences. And we pray that I will do that tonight, that you'll help me to preach your word faithfully and clearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's funny how some passages of the Bible trigger memories for you, and uh, this passage is one of those for me. Now, I don't expect it to trigger memories for many of you here, uh, but uh, was there anyone else here when that Bible passage was read and the miracle was read who started humming a song? A few, and I'm not going to say your age if that was you, but uh, when, before we went to Bible college at the Church of Victoria and I was in Sunday school, we used to sing a song based on the miracle in today's story, and I'm going to sing it for you now. Uh, it's not, you know, it's pre-Colin Buchanan, before Christian kids' music got cool, you know, that sort of thing. But this is it, it was, Peter and John went to pray, they met a lame man on the way, I leave the music at the uh, Wednesday service if you ever want to come along, but anyway, uh, they met a lame man on the way, he asked for some arms and held out his palms, it's good rhyming, and this is what Peter did say, does anyone know this? Sing along, you know, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have give I thee, But in the name of Jesus Christ, they had to fit a lot of syllables in there, of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then there was a chorus, and this is how it went. It went, he went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising, and it goes on. Anyway, for that part, in in the Sunday school class, uh, actually, our organist has uh, broken their arm for our Wednesday service, and at the moment, it's just me leading the music, like just me singing, so pray for our Wednesday service. But uh, for that part in the Sunday school lesson, all the kids, we would get them get up on the chair and jump and leap off the chair. It was just a bit of fun, we thought, and, you know, show how they were healed and all this sort of stuff. There was this one time, though, as they were singing it, one of the kids jumps off his chair, falls over and breaks his arm. And, and I can tell you now, he did not rise up and walk very quickly. Uh, there were tears like it was the end of the world. And his parents did not note the irony when they were told uh, that he'd broken his arm in the song about a healing. But anyway, because of that, I always remember this story and I always sing that song whenever I read it. But it's actually a story worth remembering because this is just a great moment. And it's part of what we see just for these first three chapters Uh, of the book of Acts, in particular last week's chapter, chapter 2, and then tonight, chapter 3, where you see this almost triumphant march of the gospel. It's just this wonderful little moment. Uh, We saw the day of Pentecost last week in chapter 2. Do you remember that uh, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches the gospel and it says thousands of people became Christians then and there. Just in, in this one moment, thousands of people. Then it tells us every day new people were being saved. Isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't you love it if if in our church every day new people were being saved? That's what I pray for. This church, the first church, had gone from 120 people to thousands in like a week. 
which, which is pretty incredible. They would have had some great stories at their first big day out. But more than that, what you see is it was thriving. Just look at the end of chapter 2. Mike only sort of touched on it last week. But you, you see this picture of the church at the end of chapter 2. And it is a picture of gatherings full of totally committed people. There was nothing half-hearted about it. These people were absolutely committed to the gospel, committed to one another. Uh, and now, as we get to chapter 3, miracles like this one we just read about are happening. It's just this wonderful, as I say, almost triumphant picture of what God is doing to, to start his church. And so I want us to look at it together. And we'll start with the miracle. I've called it the power of the gospel. And this is verses 1 to 10. So you already know the story because I just sang it for you. But here are Peter and John, two of the, that's actually the two leaders of Jesus' apostles. By this time, they'd sort of become the, the leaders of the apostles. And on this afternoon, they're going to the temple to pray. Now, that's actually a really wonderful insight into the early church because they were Jews who had come to know the Messiah, but they continued to go to the temple because they didn't see that they were starting a new religion. They thought, we're, we are the true Jews, if you like. We're the inheritors of all God's promises from the Old Testament. This is our temple. We'll go here and pray. And they wanted to share Jesus with all their fellow Jews. And so they went every day, morning and afternoon. This was no different. But on this afternoon, look at verse 2, they meet this crippled man. It tells us he'd been lame from birth. So this was no sprained ankle. This man had never walked. You see, and so obviously what must have happened is friends would carry him, they would lay him at, at this gate to the temple complex and, and he would ask people for money. Uh, and I thought it's a good place to go. If, if faithful people going to the temple don't give you money, then who will? You know, that was probably the thought. But you have to understand just how hopeless this man's situation was. This was his life. Totally helpless. No welfare system back then. Uh, there was nothing for him. He was totally reliant on the generosity of other people just to live. And so he sees Peter and John coming. He asks them for help. I don't think he was singling them out. This is so early, no one knew who they were, they didn't know, he, didn't, he wouldn't have even known what a Christian was. He wasn't asking them because here's the Apostle Peter, here's a Christian. He's just asking them like they asked every other person that walked past. Uh, and so that's where the story gets interesting. Come to verse 4. It says, Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. I think that is a great line. He's expecting to get something from them. What's he expecting? A couple of denarii in his cup, maybe a piece of silver if he's really lucky. Well, he's going to get something, but far more than he ever dreamed of. Look at verse 6. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up, stood and started to walk. And he entered the temple complex with them, walking, leaping. And praising God. Almost makes you want to get up on your chair and jump off, doesn't it? But don't, because our occupational health and safety person wouldn't like it. But uh, it's just a wonderful story. It's a wonderful moment. I want you to think about this miracle. What, what do you notice about it? Just scan your eyes over it again. What, what do you notice about it? I hope you see that, that this miracle is very much like all the miracles Jesus did. It's exactly the same. Jesus healed people with a word. Jesus' miracles were instantaneous with a word or a touch. People were healed. There's, there's no medical rationale for what happens here. And this is so important because there's a reason this miracle is so similar to Jesus' miracles and that's because this is still Jesus' miracle. 
It's really important to see. Peter and John do not claim any credit for this. In fact, they spend all the rest of this chapter telling people, don't look at us. Don't give us the credit. They want to stress it's not our power. Look again at verse 6. See, they said, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Remember when we looked at chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, we stressed how Acts is not a new story. It's continuing the story of Jesus. Well, this is making that same point. Yes, now the miracles are happening through the apostles, but it's Jesus who healed this man, not Peter, not John. It's a bit like, you know, when the billionaire gives the big donation and they send their big cheque along with some secretary to hand it over. Now, in one sense, did the secretary give the million dollars? Sort of, they handed the cheque over, but everyone knows where it came from. It came from the billionaire. Well, here it is, Jesus, who's giving this man life. Now, why does this miracle happen? What's it here for? Other than that Peter and John saw this man and said, we can help. Well, two things, I think. The first is what I've just said. It validates that the apostles are continuing Jesus's ministry. To the apostles, especially Peter and then Paul, who we'll we'll come up to in a few chapters, they do a number of miracles and acts. And the purpose is always to validate, we are speaking for Jesus. So by doing this miracle, they're saying, we are continuing Jesus' work. The miracles confirm they are Jesus' ambassadors, his apostles, his sent ones. That's one thing this miracle points out. But the other thing is, exactly the same as all Jesus' other miracles, this is actually an acted out picture of the gospel. See, when Jesus did his miracles, often what they were was like the greatest sermon illustrations you would ever see. They just backed up what he was saying and that's what's happening here. In the same way that Jesus gave this man life, restored life to him, well, so does the gospel give us life. In the same way that Jesus saves this man, so he saves anyone who trusts in Jesus. Just by the by on this, people love to to look at the miracles of Jesus where he cures you know, a lame man or, or a blind man or a deaf person or whatever it is, or, or a leper or, or whatever. Uh, and they love to make big arguments about how that shows how we should do the same thing, how we should be healers and how we should be out doing that sort of thing. That's not why this miracle is here. It's not to teach you to be like Jesus. You cannot be like Jesus. You don't have the gift of healing. We care for the poor. We care for the sick. We care for the outcast. Why do we do that? Because Jesus says, love people. That's why you care. You, you love people. And so like Jesus, because you know the love of Christ, you love people. That's why we do that. But if you take anything from this story, if you take something from it, it's make sure that people know that you love them because of the name of Jesus. See, what good is it for people to think that, that you are generous if they don't know that you are generous because of Jesus? See, this is the point. You see, then you get the glory instead of Jesus. Whatever good you do, whatever love we show, we do it so that Jesus's name is known, so that Jesus's name is glorified, not so that our name is. But let's come back to the story. Come with me. Because the story doesn't end with the healing. As the man sort of walked and leaped around the temple complex, people couldn't help but notice, isn't that the guy we've walked past for years? Isn't that the bloke who who, who hasn't been able to walk ever? They knew this guy. They dropped coins in his cup. Maybe they wanted a refund. I don't know. But Here he is, walking and leaping, and the people are surprised, it says, they're amazed, and news spread, and a large crowd gathers. And just like last week at Pentecost, Peter once again sees this is an opportunity to move from the miracle to what really matters, 
telling people about the one who did the miracle. Move to telling them about Jesus. So it comes to my second point, which is the message of the gospel. This is the rest of the chapter, verses 11 to 26. So here are Peter and John. All the people come flocking because they've seen the incredible miracle. And Peter preaches the gospel. Now, there is just so much in these sermons in Acts. I want you to go home tonight and read it again and and plummet steps further. A bit like uh, Mike last week with Acts chapter 2. There was so much in it. You know, we'd be here for hours to plummet steps. But I want you just to note, this is pretty amazing. These are, what we saw last week and this week, these are the first Christian sermons ever preached. You see that? See how amazing that is? These are the first Christian presentations of the gospel after the resurrection of Jesus that we have, which makes them pretty amazing and pretty important. And I want us to see three big key points of what Peter has to say. The first is, it's all about Jesus. Come with me to verse 12. It says, when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is that point from before, don't give us the credit, it's Jesus we want you to know. We are just the channel, Jesus is the one you need to come to know. Can I just encourage you at that point, remember that when you share your story with people. You know, when you, when you share your testimony, when you share your story of how you came to know Jesus, sometimes I hear Christians share their story and it's all about them. And it's all about their experience When we share our story, we want to point people to Jesus always. We want to say, this is how I've come to know Jesus, who died for me, who rose again. And you notice just how much he packs in about who Jesus is in this little sermon. I counted that he gave Jesus four different titles in this short speech. But even as I was preaching it, I found another couple this morning. But I'm only going to point out four. Uh, Look at verse 13. He says in verse 13 that Jesus is the servant of God. Now, if you know your Bible... Immediately that sends you back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah talked about a servant who had come to die for God's people, the promised one. So that is saying that is who Jesus is. Then he calls him, verse 14, the holy and righteous one. That is a title for God. Only, only God is holy and righteous. He's making an incredible claim about Jesus at that point. Then look at verse 15. He calls him the source of life. That's absolutely incredible. See, he is saying Jesus is more than a man. When God created everything, it was Jesus who gave you life. More than that, he gives us new life through his resurrection. So he's the source of this life and eternal life, if you like. Then fourthly, good verse 18, says he is the Messiah. He is God's promised King and Saviour, the one the Old Testament promised. Now, I could spend an hour unpacking every one of those titles, but that's for another day. Uh, The point is... This is the Jesus Peter wants you to know, the one who God has glorified, the one who the whole Old Testament points to. That is who we must want people to know. It's really important to understand this. The gospel is not a philosophy for life. Christianity is not a religion. Everything else is religion. Christianity is not a religion. The gospel is not rules for living, how to do better. First and foremost, we don't actually have a better way of living to share with people. We share the good news about the person of Jesus. We want people to come to know the person of Jesus, who is God's servant, who is the holy and righteous one, who is the source of life, who is God's Messiah who came to save us. 
That is our gospel. So we want people to actually come to know Jesus personally, like we have come to know Jesus. So let's take every opportunity, like Peter and John, to tell people about our Lord. Second thing I want you to see from this sermon is that the gospel demands a response. Look back over this speech. What strikes me more than anything else as I read it is just how bold Peter is. That strike you as it was being read out before? What I've found across today is all our Bible readers are too nice. Peter was yelling at them. You get the sense, they're like, whoa, we didn't sign up for this when we came to listen, when we heard about the guy who was healed. There is no toning it down for Peter. Remember, he is preaching in Jerusalem a bit over a month after they crucified Jesus. And he's preaching to the people who did it. And he's saying to them, what you did was awful. He wants them to realize more than anything else, their guilt before God. But wow, if you look at what he says, it took a lot of guts. Look at, look at verse 13. It says, The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. He's saying, Pilate was going to let Jesus go, but you guys made sure he got killed. Then look at verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You, would, you said, we'd rather have you release a murderer than the person who has never sinned. And then look at verse 15, you killed the source of life. Isn't that a powerful sentence? You killed the one who gave you life. It's no wonder next week we'll hear how Peter and John got arrested after this sermon. But now, this is, is not a model of exactly how we should go and preach the gospel. If I hear that anyone tomorrow is down at Carlton Station yelling at people, these sort of things, I, I'll have a chat to you, that those specific sins were what they did at that time and needed to be dealt with. But at the same time, to preach the gospel faithfully, we have to confront people about the reality of sin. See, to come to know Jesus, you have to recognise you are guilty before God. That's what every Christian has done. Christians aren't better than other people. We've just recognized we are guilty before God. We deserve his judgment. We need to hear that our sin means that God had to send his son to pay the price on our behalf. It takes real boldness to share that message, doesn't it? You know, every time we run the life course, week two, I feel incredibly uncomfortable. I'm paid to preach the gospel. Sometimes I'm the person giving the talk and I feel uncomfortable. That's because week two, we explain the reality of sin and how we are all guilty before God. And it is hard to do it. And every time, I mean, you say this, Mike or Troy, every time I'm tempted to tone it down. I'm tempted to say it less clearly. I'm tempted to say it in a way that, that might not offend that person. We must not do that. We need to pray for boldness because some people will not like the gospel. That's why Paul says the message of the gospel is the stench of death to some. But remember, it will be the aroma of life to others. That's the other thing he says. Like it has been to us and like it has been to you, I pray. And to share the gospel, ultimately we have to do what Peter did. We need to then invite a response of repentance. 
See, Peter doesn't just want them to feel guilty for the sake of feeling guilty. I think sometimes I hear Christian preachers and it's like they feel successful if they've made everyone feel guilty. We never want people to, to remain feeling guilty because he wants them to do what he has done and repent. Remember, Peter denied Jesus too. He repented, turned around, turned back to Jesus and put his faith in him. So look at verse 19. He says to them, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Here's the thing, you haven't shared the gospel with someone until you've explained to them how they can benefit from it. To become a Christian is to repent. It's to turn around, to turn away from our old way of life where we lived with ourselves as the Lord, where we decided right and wrong for ourselves. It's to turn away from that and turn to trust in Jesus and follow him. Do you know, I sometimes talk to people who've been around church for a long time and they can explain to me all about Jesus. They can talk about how Jesus died for sin. They know that Jesus rose from the dead, but they are not converted because they have never repented. They've never made that fundamental change to say, I am no longer living for myself. I am guilty, but now I am turning and trusting in Jesus. And now he is my Lord. I pray that you have repented and turned to follow Jesus. I pray that you look back and know, I have turned away from my sin and I have trusted in Christ. But... If you haven't, please just come and talk to me quietly. And let's talk about it together because it is the most important thing any person must do. But for all of us who do know Jesus, we need to pray for Peter's boldness, don't we? We need to pray that we would have the courage to set forth the truth of the gospel to anyone who would listen. We pray that we would have the courage to invite people to come and hear the gospel, like on Tuesday night at the Life Course. Pray that we would have the courage to tell people the truth. The truth about our problem of sin and guilt and the courage to invite people to repent and turn to Jesus. So we've seen the gospel is all about Jesus. We've seen it takes boldness to preach the gospel and call for that response. But lastly, the third thing, the gospel is the most beautiful news. See, yes, Peter makes this incredibly bold call, but why could he be so bold? Because he knows that what he is offering is the most wonderful thing in the world. And there's three wonderful blessings he talks about for people who turn to follow Jesus. Firstly, look at verse 19. He says, Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. Isn't that just the most wonderful picture of forgiveness? Here we have sin and guilt. It's like our sins are recorded on a whiteboard and Jesus just comes and wipes them all out. It's much better than that because whenever I try and rub anything off the whiteboard, it seems to leave a shadow there. But no, 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 he wipes it out totally. This is so wonderful. Jesus leaves nothing behind. As far as the east is from the west, so is our sin removed from us. See, it would be wonderful enough if God just said, I forgive you, now go sit in the corner and I'll have nothing to do with you. But no, 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 God wipes out our sin i know we talk about this every time we meet sometimes people say to me why do you talk about jesus forgiving our sins every sunday can't you talk about something different i want to say to you do not ever stop realizing how wonderful the forgiveness of jesus is don't ever take it for granted instead of facing god's judgment like we deserve our sin has been wiped away 
And if you think about it, if that offer can be made to the people who killed the source of life, then that offer is open to anyone, isn't it? Anyone can have their sin wiped out. More than that, Jesus also offers, second thing, times of refreshing. Look at verse 19 again. It says, Therefore repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God doesn't just forgive you, he refreshes you. It's like I said before, he doesn't just forgive you and say, now I want nothing to do with you. He forgives you and gives you his Holy Spirit so that you know his refreshment. I don't think we're meant to define this precisely, but it's talking about about that refreshment that comes from knowing God. Uh, That awful burden of wondering, could I ever be good enough for God, has been taken away from us. You, you have the joy of knowing God as your Father. You can pray to Him. We have that joy that comes from knowing that, that God is in control of everything. See, the gospel doesn't just offer a future hope. It offers a release from the burdens of this world now. It's because of the gospel that the Apostle Paul can say to us, do not be anxious about anything, but present all your requests to God. Or as Jesus said, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But of course, those times of refreshment are because Jesus does offer us that future hope. And that's the third blessing. Come with me, the final thing, which is the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. Look at verse 20. It says, And that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah, heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Yes, we have refreshment now through Jesus, but we long for Jesus to return. Every Christian, every day, should pray, come Lord Jesus, because our world is broken. If you haven't been struck by some of the images on your TV set this week, our world is broken. Our world is full of pain, our world is full of suffering and sickness and evil and sin and we cannot fix it. Our modern world thinks you can fix it with education. If you just educate everyone, they'll get better. They don't. If you educate everyone, they just get better at sinning. They just get better at coming up with worse ways to do more evil to people. You can't fix it with social reforms because the problem is in here, in the human heart. See, as good as education or social reform is, those things can only ever deal with short-term symptoms. But when Christ returns, he will bring in a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more tears. There'll be no more broken relationships. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more evil. That is what we, if you know Jesus, that is what we look forward to when Christ returns. So that's what Jesus offers us. He offers us total forgiveness of our sins. He offers us true refreshment of our souls right now and a certain hope that cannot be taken away from us. Brothers and sisters, isn't that just the most wonderful news in the world? I was hoping you might respond there and say yes. Isn't that just the most wonderful news in the world? Isn't that why we love Jesus? Isn't that why we've repented? Isn't that why we're happy to preach the gospel with boldness? Because who wouldn't want to share that wonderful news? Of course, that's why we jump and leap and praise God like the lame man in our story. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel. We thank you that our sin has been wiped out by Jesus. We thank you that we have received the gift of your Holy Spirit who refreshes us now. And we thank you that we look forward to a day when Jesus will return and where this world will be given a new creation where there'll be no more pain and no more tears and no more suffering. And so, Father, in the meantime, give us the boldness of Peter to declare that truth to a world that so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.